0: Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. The rest of us can in turn uh, are in God's Word. If you have a copy of God's Word at your disposal, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We are studying this uh, section by section. We're back in this and we'll keep at it here for the next several weeks. And uh, looking forward to um, finalizing, particularly this section at the end of chapter 4, it kind of wraps up a, a major division within the book as he Pivots into chapter five, he's starting to address some specific issues in the church uh, beyond the division. But in these opening four chapters of the letter, the overwhelming spiritual issue and temptation that Paul's confronting and correcting is this temptation within their midst to sinful pride and the division that that inevitably creates in the body of Christ, in the local church. If you look at chapter 1, verses 10 to 12, he says, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, I of Cephas, and I of Christ. So we have a church that he's writing to. He has firsthand knowledge <clears throat> through Chloe's people, whoever they were, for uh, about the profound truths that. The, excuse me, the, the partisan rivalry that was dividing their church, because it wasn't profound truths. It had nothing to do with with the uh, the key doctrines of Scripture. That wasn't what was driving a wedge between different factions. They weren't trying to hammer out and clarify what does the Word of God. Uh, what what authority does it have, or is it inspired, or what is the gospel, or who is the person of Jesus Christ, or, or the Trinity? Like those those are things that are serious things, significant things, clear things in Scripture. Thank you, and that require <clears throat> that require us uh, to hold fast to, and that may mean that we have to divide. But they weren't divided over those kinds of things, they were divided over silly things. What leader they thought was the most eloquent, or what person they thought was the most worldly wise, or the most influential, or the most likely to be recognized and received among the unbelieving culture. The Corinthian church was chopping itself up into smaller and smaller pieces as people were boasting in their preferred leaders and their personal preferences and then aligning themselves behind those whom they felt were uh, most in line with their desires. And Paul calls this out as contrary to our calling and our confession in verse 13 with these rhetorical questions. He says, Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The obvious answer to those questions is no, of course not. It is a reduction to absurdity, this line of questioning here. He says, of course Christ isn't divided. Of course we're united under him as our spiritual head. And therefore, by necessity, we're united to one another in the body of Christ. And we need to live that way. We need to operate that way as Christians. Scripture affirms again and again that Christ-like humility is the one character quality that we must embrace to open the floodgates of God's grace into our hearts and in our lives, to empower us to be holy as he is holy. And pride is the one character quality that dams that whole thing up and turns our hearts into a dust bowl of sin and selfishness. Peter uh, says in 1 Peter 5 verse 5, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And, uh, and so Paul is simply uh, indirectly pointing them to this reality. And if you were to distill down what we've studied thus far in these opening chapters, it would simply be this, that biblical unity in the truth in the local church puts pride to death and pursues humility. Biblical unity in the church around the truth. Again, this is we're not talking about unity apart from truth, but unity in the truth. In the local church puts pride to death and pursues humility. If we're going to be one as we're called to be and instructed to be, if we're going to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, then we must humbly embrace the word of the cross and come by the way of the cross. And walk in that day by day. That's the point Paul has been making throughout these opening chapters. While our pride-soaked foolishness and the failure of man's wisdom must be forsaken. That is essentially the argument that's being made in chapters 1 through 4. It's the lesson that the church always has to learn and relearn and learn again. And as we come back to our text in chapter 4, we're looking at verses 6 to 13, and even move down through the end of the chapter, Paul's drawing his thoughts on this whole issue of pride and division to a. He's driving them to a conclusion, and he does so with a call to action. Paul he he kind of abandons subtlety, he abandons uh, imagery, he he sets aside um, you know indirect arguments, and from six on to the end of the chapter, he is speaking as straightforwardly and possible as he possibly can. In verse 6, he says, These things, brethren, I have figuratively applied to myself and Apollos for your sakes, so that in us you may not exceed what is written. He says, The word of the cross and the way of the cross is one of humility, humility that is embodied by Christ and exemplified by us, He says, you must walk in it. They were swelled up with pride. They were filled up with pride in persons, pride in man's wisdom, pride in their personal opinions and judgments, as you see in the earlier verses of chapter 4. But the word of the cross is a very different path. And so he says, now's the time for choosing. He says, you can either continue to boast in your Preferred leaders, and you can continue to bite and devour one another like mere men, contending to be first. We called that swagger Christianity last week. Or you can suffer and sacrifice for one another like Christ, being content to be last in what we've termed spectacle Christianity. But he said you have to make a choice. The time for choosing is now. And we, like them, have that same We are faced with that same decision. We have to decide, are we going to walk in swagger Christianity, um, which reflects the world's wisdom and its values, or are we going to embrace the spectacle Christianity that was exemplified by Paul and the other apostles, which reflects God's wisdom and what Christ values? We we have to make a decision on this. And Paul, essentially, in this text, is is drawing a proverbial line in the sand and saying... Uh, what will it be for you as the reader, as the hearer? Swagger Christianity or a spectacle Christianity? But obviously, we know from this passage, other sections in 1 Corinthians, as well as Ephesians and other sections, if the local church is going to be mature, if we're going to have a spirit of agreement, if we're if we're going to grow up into all respects into him who is the head, even Jesus Christ, we have to have the same mind and the same judgment, and that requires embracing a spectacle Christianity every day. Every heart must pursue Christ-like humility. And so we began, even last Sunday, because this is really a two-parter, contrasting swagger Christianity, what we're calling swagger Christianity, with spectacle Christianity. And we, just by way of review, we pointed out four... Problems, and we're just we're just tracing this through the text as Paul does. Four problems with a swagger Christianity, meaning a Christian a Christian's cadence, their life, their walk in the local church that's marked out by fleshly pride. What is that? Uh, why is that a problem? And we said first, it's uh, swagger Christianity is a problem because it regularly steps outside of the boundaries of God's revealed word. Verse six. He says, I've applied all this to myself and Apollos. I've taken all these images and things in the preceding chapter, and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm putting them to work to describe us and our situation so that in us you may, not, you may learn not to exceed what is written. And we said that's referring to Scripture, that we would not go beyond the Word of God. And this is a key hallmark of prideful, swagger Christianity. It regularly steps outside, beyond, goes beyond the boundaries of Scripture. Um, when our hearts are prideful, we very often will establish our own standards of righteousness, our own standards of good and evil, right and wrong, faithful and unfaithful. And uh, and what happens, and this is what was happening in the Corinthian church, is that matters of conscience and matters of personal preferences, things that are the applications of Scripture, were becoming the definitive test of fellowship in the church. And orthodoxy, they were going beyond the Scriptures, and they were falling into that same trap that Paul condemns, or excuse me, Jesus condemns in Mark seven, in which we teach as doctrines the precepts of men. So swagger Christianity, in its pride, it creates man-made criteria. They aren't God's criteria for faithful leadership or godly living or fellowship. And in so doing, we invalidate the word of God by our man-made tradition. This is a serious issue. And it leads naturally into the second problem, which we pointed out last Sunday, is swagger Christianity prompts us to partiality and partisan rivalry. I mean, it's a really short drive from making your own standard of righteousness to then evaluating others on that standard, that wrong standard, and then wanting to separate from them and to, to distance yourself from them. See, it wasn't the substance of Scripture, the true, clear theology of Scripture that was causing them to divide. It was the style, each man's style. One resonated more with Peter. One resonated more with Apollos or whoever, and how they ministered to them, and they were making the applications of Scripture the litmus test for faithfulness. That's completely wrong. We must unite around the clear theology of Scripture in the church and the applications of those Scriptures, that clear theology. That is why there must be um, not uniformity in the church, but unity, meaning that we can have the same biblical convictions and seek to apply them in different ways, in different contexts, based on our individual conscience. And so swagger Christianity always devolves into partisan rivalry and partiality. It crafts artificial standards apart from God's word and then uses those standards to boast in men rather than boasting in Christ. And Paul says, I wrote to you so that you would not become arrogant in behalf of one against the other, he says at the end of verse 6. I don't want this to be the case. Don't go down any further down this road. Thirdly, Swagger Christianity gives... forgets that God is the gracious giver of all that is good. Verse 7, he says, Who regards you as superior, and what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? We forget in our pride to humbly acknowledge that everything is a gift from God. All we have, all we've been given is from his gracious hand. When we're prideful, we take what we've been given and we usurp it and treat it as if it's inherent to who we are. You see those things as belonging to you and that warps the way you look at other believers. It warps the way you live among other believers because you you often will evaluate them based on your standards and when they don't seem to measure up, you'll treat them poorly. Swagger Christianity looks, we said, at all that we've been given and falls into that trap that, Paul, that Moses warned Israel that they would do as they forgot God, and we say, my power and the strength of my hand has made me this wealth, this knowledgeable, this discerning, whatever. So we have to be really careful about that. When you're puffed up with pride, when I'm puffed up with pride, we lose sight of the fact that everything that we have, our salvation, our knowledge, our discernment, our giftedness, our responsibilities, our health, our strength, our time, our money, all of it, all of it is given to us by God. Every good and gracious thing comes from the Father in whom there is no variation or shifting shadow, James tells us. So, so we have to remember, as Paul calls us to, who has given us all that we have. And fourth, A problem with swagger Christianity, we said, is it elevates what man values and denigrates, looks down on what God values. Verse 8, he says, "'You have already been filled. You've already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might reign with you. We are fools for Christ's sake,' verse 10, "'but you are prudent. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished.'" but we are without honor all that the paul uh, calls out here about them self-righteous prudence power being distinguished in the eyes of the world being first occupying positions of responsibility and authority calling the shots all of it all of it is flesh you don't have to have the holy spirit to want those things Unbelievers want those things. They always have wanted of those things. Swagger Christianity elevates those things, and it denigrates what God values. As we're going to see this morning, God values weakness. God values uh, dependence on him. He, he values being counted foolish for his namesake. The Corinthians, they said, no, this, this couldn't possibly be what God wants for me. He couldn't possibly want me to to be weak or my family or my church to struggle in a world like the world he's given us. No, no. But as we're going to see this morning, they were wrong, completely wrong in that. Paul says in this present age, we live in an upside-down kingdom. We we live in an upside-down world. We're strangers and aliens. This world is not our home, ultimately. The word of the cross and the way of the cross is paved with weakness, with humiliation, with rejection. That was true for Christ. It was true for Paul and the apostles. It has been true for countless believers throughout church history. And it should be true for us to some degree. Their path reflects the true nature of discipleship, following Christ. So while swagger Christianity seeks the pride and the glory of a crown while bypassing the at least trying to bypass the humiliation and weakness of the cross Paul is going to show us in the rest of our text this morning that spectacle Christianity is just the opposite it's completely upside down and that's what we want to do with the balance of our time and our study this morning i want to show you as we continue tracing Paul's argument through the text the preeminence of spectacle Christianity, the superiority that is spectacle Christianity that we must embrace. And I want to show you why it is superior. In verse 9, somewhat in verse 10, but if you read the opposite side of what Paul's saying, and then in verses 11, 12, and 13, we see the preeminence of spectacle Christianity. In other words, a Christian's cadence in the church that's marked out by humility and lowliness, the opposite of pride and boasting. So we have three, uh, three items that he kind of pulls out here in the text to show why spectacle Christianity is superior. First, spectacle Christianity places us squarely within the boundary of God's will, God's revealed will. God's uh, spectacle Christianity places us squarely within the boundary of God's revealed will verse 9 for i think god has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men so if you look at verse 9 paul describes himself his situation and the other apostles situation in complete contrast to the corinthians They didn't view themselves in this way. They didn't think of themselves in that light. At the end of verse 8, he made it clear that that both he and the other apostles, they had not entered a time of reigning, if you will. They were not not at the top of the mountain. And he the way he says that at the end of verse 8 is, I wish you had become kings so that we might reign with you. That statement by implication means they have not either. They think they have, but he says, I kind of wish that was true, but it's not true, because if it was true, well, we'd be reigning with you. And so, what he does there from verse 8 into verse 9 is he opens up the book of his life and he says, Let me show you, let me show you what discipleship following Christ really looks like. Was it God's will for them? To rule, to reign, to be distinguished, to be honored, to walk through life triumphant and respected and to sit atop the places of authority and to have influence and define the culture? Is that what Christian, the Christian life is all about, this side of heaven? Paul says, not exactly, not quite. Rather, he says, God has exhibited us as apostles last of all. As men condemned to death. The picture that he paints here in verse 9 is one of a criminal. The, he pictures a criminal or a defeated enemy that is condemned to death in the arena, right? We're all familiar with the gladiatorial games where men would fight other men or wild animals for, for entertainment in the debauched culture that they lived in. And um, the picture here could be one of a criminal, but it also more likely is tied to this picture of a defeated enemy when a Roman general would win a, a victory over an opponent, an enemy. Uh, that victory was celebrated oftentimes by a, some kind of massive parade through the city. Um, they would come as a general would, Triumphant with all of his soldiers, kind of marched through the city, and everyone would uh, praise and, and rejoice over this great victory. And behind them, these victors would follow the prisoners of the defeated army. Maybe it was a conquered king, certainly, it was going to be upper level uh, soldiers, generals, most senior officers, and they were carted through and they were put on display for everyone to see and to mock, essentially, to gloat over. These were prisoners of war, spoils of war, and these individuals were under sentence of death. And they would often be taken to the arenas to fight against wild beasts as entertainment. And Paul says, we, as apostles, as disciples of Christ, we are those prisoners condemned to death. That's how he viewed himself. We're those men being put on display publicly to be mocked and humiliated as objects of ridicule and then tossed aside. We have become, he said, a spectacle to the world. And that's where we're picking up this term, spectacle Christianity. The word spectacle here is the word in the original language, theatron, theater. It's where we get our English word theater from. And that's essentially what it referred to, the theater. And in the context, it refers not to the theater space itself, but to what one sees at a theater. He says, we've become a spectacle to the world. The apostles, he said, we have been paraded across the world stage as those condemned to death, We are a spectacle not only to men, but to angels. In other words, all personal entities in heaven and on earth. We've become a spectacle, he said, to the whole universe. That's why he includes both groups of people here in verse 9. We are being carted across the stage to be mocked, to be scorned, to be ridiculed, humiliated. But notice who has placed them in this position. Look at verse 9 again. I think God has exhibited us as apostles last of all. Who put them in this position of lowliness? Who put them in this position of humiliation and suffering and weakness? Paul says it was God. God did this. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says God has purposely put them where they are. Were. They're paraded across the world stage, he said, like men condemned to death, to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to suffer for Christ's sake. And God has appointed them to that position of lowliness. Um, One old uh, paraphrased version of the Bible translates this passage. He says, he translates verse 9 like this, God means for us apostles to come in at the very end like doomed gladiators in the arena. That's his paraphrase, Moffat's paraphrase of verse 9. See, the Corinthians, in all of their pride and all of their arrogance and immaturity, were under the false impression that God had appointed them not, not to be in the arena, but to sit in the box seats, if you will, and to observe the spectacle to be entertained. And Paul says, no, God has not appointed us as disciples, as those uh, condemned to die, to sit in the box seats. He says, we're not watching the spectacle. We are the spectacle. We are the spectacle. That's what the Corinthians viewed themselves as. They thought they were there to watch. And we can be like that. In our hearts, we can be like the Corinthians. We can think wrongly that our commitment to Christ somehow exempts us from suffering, from humiliation, from ridicule, from persecution. We we think that as believers, that the Christian life is just about sitting back and enjoying the show as God tramples out the winepress of his fierce wrath. On the world. That's not it at all. That is not the picture the New Testament paints for the disciple in this present age. You and I, like Paul, need to take seriously that discipleship following Christ entails a fellowship in his sufferings, that we may be called upon to share in his sufferings. Paul sent Timothy to the Thessalonian church. And in chapter 3, verse 3 of 1 Thessalonians, he says, so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. In other words, life was hard. They weren't being embraced by the world. They were suffering for their testimony for Christ. He says, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. In other words, this was God's will for us. Philippians 1, verse 29, Paul says to the Philippians, it has been granted to you, For Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. I mean, that that is the reality. Affliction, suffering, humiliation, lowliness, these are the norm in this present age. And this is God's will for the believer on this side of heaven. When you suffer for Christ's sake, not for your own sin and your own foolishness, which Peter warns against. If you sin and are harshly treated for it, Paul says that finds no favor with God. But when we take a stand for what's true biblically in a way that reflects Christ's attitude, you can rejoice because that means you are walking within the boundaries of God's will. God's revealed will. He wills that we suffer for his name's sake. And so that's why we say spectacle Christianity places us right in the middle of God's revealed will. Within God's will, you'll find power to live faithfully. Within God's will, you'll find provision for every spiritual and practical need. Within God's will, you will find perseverance. So, spectacle Christianity is preeminent because it ensures that we are walking the center line of God's will. We don't have to wonder, is, is God, you know, we don't have to be disturbed by these afflictions that we experience for the sake of Christ. We know that we are suffering for his name's sake. We're right square within the middle of God's revealed will. And while we may be treated as last, yet in Christ's future kingdom, one day we will be first. So spectacle Christianity is preeminent because it places us within the boundary of God's revealed will. But secondly, spectacle Christianity is preeminent because it pushes us into wholehearted dependence on God. It comes to us out of verses 10 uh, and then 11 and the beginning part of verse 12 in the text. He says, "'We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent. "'We are weak, but you are strong.'" You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. The hardships that, that Paul and the other apostles experienced, which he details here and later on in Second Corinthians um, 6, and I think again in chapter 11, he describes all the hardships that he experienced. He says, I, I was a f- I'm counted as a fool for Christ's sake. In other words, God's way looks foolish to the world and it is roundly mocked and scorned. He says, we are weak. God's way looks impotent. God's way looks insufficient, hardly worth embracing to the world. He says, we are without honor. In other words, God's way affords man no status, no respect. We said that you cannot follow Christ faithfully in a status-conferring manner in the world. It just won't happen. He says, we are both hungry and thirsty and are poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. We toil working with our own hands. God's way is hard. Not just spiritually hard, but it's physically hard in some situations. The apostles lived hand to mouth. They ran in fear from adversaries to preserve their lives. And they were the foundation stones of Christ's church. And they had to make their own way. You say, well, what is the benefit of that? What is the benefit of all that suffering? What possible purpose could God have in that kind of humiliation and lowliness and lack? Like, what, what benefit does that serve? Well, one of the benefits is many, but one such benefit is, it forces us to trust God, to depend on Him, for everything. M- you know, mere willpower and stubbornness isn't going to be enough to persevere under that kind of duress, under the weight of those hardships. So spectacle Christianity, Christian living that clings to the word of the cross and comes by the way of the cross is a Christian life that is lived entirely on the basis of faith. We enter into Faith in Christ in that moment of decision, of trusting Christ, which is in itself an act of God's grace. But we live every moment of every day by that same faith. It doesn't stop the moment you come to Christ. It only continues and grows. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians again, later on in his ministry in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 1, in verse 8, he describes this, this situation. We don't know the specifics of it, but it was an intense trial that they, he and some of other his other beloved brothers and sisters experienced. In verse 8 of chapter 1, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, So that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. Sounds very similar, doesn't it? Men condemned to die. Here's the reason or purpose. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So here we see Paul describing affliction. He says we were burdened beyond strength. We despaired even of life. What did that push Paul and his fellow believers to do? Compelled them not to trust in themselves, but in God who raises the dead. And that is what spectacle Christianity ought to compel you and I to do. It ought to compel us to look away from and stop trusting in ourselves and our circumstances and to depend on God in all situations Listen, the ease of which we can enter into a Christian commitment in our culture today, it is a huge temptation to trust in ourselves. And that is borne out in our embarrassing prayerlessness, our egregious sense of entitlement, and how exceedingly we grumble and complain at the slightest inconveniences and hardships. But there's a reason Jesus taught us to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. God's glorious riches stand out most poignantly in our poverty. God's sufficiency, his glorious sufficiency stands out most brightly in our lack, and God's glorious strength stands out most Powerfully in our weakness. So, spectacle Christianity is preeminent, it's superior because it pushes us as believers to trust in Jesus and in his provision wholeheartedly at all times. Third, spectacle Christianity is preeminent because it elevates what God values and repudiates what man values. It elevates it; it extols what God values and repudiates man's values. The complete opposite of what spec, uh, swagger Christianity does, because swagger Christianity elevates man's values and denigrates what God values. Spectacle Christianity flips that around and gets it in the right order. And man, while man values ruling and reigning, and strength, and being first in this life, and commanding authority, and God's values on those things are, are different. They're, they're drastically different. That's why he says in verse 12, we are, uh, when we toil... Working with our own, we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. And just looking at what Paul's describing and how he, and the other apostles, responded, we see what God values. God values speech, That blesses others. This is a direct echo of Jesus' teaching in Luke chapter 6 and verse 28 when he says, Bless those who curse you. It's it's exemplified in not only his God's uh, Christ teaching, but in his example at the cross as he prayed, as these men in their ignorance, some of them in their complete uh, denial of the reality, he says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. So God values speech that blesses. God values faithful endurance, perseverance. James 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, or crown that is life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. In other words, faithful endurance is... Is a blessing. It's something that God confers as a blessing on those who persevere in the midst of trial. What greater example of faithful endurance is there than Jesus, who endured the most horrendous false accusations and ultimately suffered and gave his life on the cross for sinners? What greater example of perseverance is there than Christ? God values speech that blesses, he values faithful endurance Paul says here, God values conciliation that's an interesting word, it's it's a fascinating word study, it's totally worth the time and effort it took to uh, dig around on it when Paul was slandered when Paul's reputation was torn down he responded graciously that's what the word means Uh, The word means in English, um, a way to describe it would be to treat someone in an inviting or congenial manner, to invite in, to be friendly or to speak in a friendly tone. That's what he did with those who slandered him, those who spoke falsely of him, those who maligned him and maligned the gospel. And that kind of conduct makes no sense to the Greeks any more than it makes any sense to the culture we live in today, right? The world we live in today does not embrace returning evil with gracious speech. It was viewed then, as it's viewed today, as a lack of courage, a lack of determination, a lack of manliness, that you would let someone walk all over you verbally. But Paul says, God values not dunking on one another, but conciliation, being gracious. If you back up into verse 10 and you kind of extrapolate what he's saying there, God values being counted a fool for Christ's sake. God values weakness. God values being dishonored, if that's what obedience to his word demands. These are all things that the world looks at, right, and says, no, that, uh, no, no way. God, you can't want me to embrace playing the fool for Christ's sake or weakness or embrace dishonor or embrace and to be happy blessing those who revile Christ in the gospel You don't expect me to embrace endurance in the midst of persecution or conciliation toward those who would speak ill of my reputation. You couldn't possibly want me to embrace being thought of and treated, as he says at the end of verse 13, like the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. You say, what is that? Picture the stuff you scrape off a burnt pan into the trash. That's the picture when he says the scum of the world, the dregs of all things. They're two terms, but they're vivid terms to describe the off-scouring of trash. It's just worthless. He says that is how we are even until now. As he wrote to them, He says, up to this present moment, this wasn't how we were treated in the past before people understood how amazing we were as apostles. No, he says, that's how we're treated now. This is a serious reversal for Paul and for them. He says, we are treated as the most contemptible and useless people on the planet. And his point here is not, it's it's hard to miss. You see, in contrast to the worldly wise who want to be filled, who want to be rich, who want to rule, who want to be seen as wise, who want to exercise power and honor, spectacle Christianity looks far, far more like the path that Jesus tread. This is powerful stuff from Paul, and it just reinforces the argument he's been making the whole time and that is that the foolishness of God is wiser than men in every respect. So we're not surprised. We shouldn't be surprised when God's way is sort of upside down. The way up is down. And when we go down, we will be exalted. The whole passage emphasizes this contradiction between what God values and what man values. Spectacle Christianity elevates what God values, and it repudiates what man values. Paul says, remember he said, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. That's a repudiation of man's wisdom. He goes on to say, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So it repudiates what man values, God's wisdom does. So we said at the outset, both last week and this week, Paul says this is a time for choosing. It's a time for choosing. Swagger Christianity and all of its pride-soaked pride soaked ugliness It constantly is drawing on our hearts. It's tugging on our hearts. The old man, the old woman is constantly struggling with pride. John Chrysostom, our early church father, called pride the mother of hell. Thomas Watson, Puritan, called pride spiritual drunkenness. It flies up like wine into the brain and intoxicates. He said it is idolatry. A proud man is a self-worshipper. God himself, through Solomon, says, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination in his eyes. Proverbs 16, verse 5. When we carry swagger Christianity then into the dynamic of the body of Christ, the local church, that attitude punches Holes, gaping holes, all throughout the hull of the ship, and it starts to take on water. Pride does. But on the other hand, spectacle Christianity, in all of its spirit-filled humility and lowliness, it begs you and I each and every day to put it on like a garment. First Peter 5, verse 5, Paul says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Spectacle Christianity has the added benefit of capturing our Heavenly Father's gaze. Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, To this one I will look, him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Spectacle Christianity makes the heart the triune God's palace. Isaiah 57, verse 15, thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, God in all of his holiness, in all of his exaltation, he says, I will dwell on high and a holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of mind. So do you want to be confident that you're walking squarely within the boundary of God's will? Do you want to know that you are depending wholeheartedly on God? Do you want to be sure that your life reflects what God values and repudiates what man values, then you need to embrace a spectacle Christianity that humbly clings to the word of the cross and comes by the way of the cross. There's no glory apart from that. A spectacle Christianity like Peter's who said, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he might exalt you at the proper time. And then he went on to be crucified upside down for his faith in Christ. Or a spectacle Christianity like James, who said in James 4.10, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. And he was stoned, pushed from the corner of the temple mount, and clubbed to death, the base of the temple or a spectacle of Christianity like Jesus, who said in Luke 14, verse 11, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And of course, we know he redeemed sinners from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. In order that in him, Galatians says, we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Everywhere you look, is spectacle Christianity. We've deluded ourselves to think that we can come to the crowning glory of the Christian life apart from a life lived in suffering and difficulty. All who are faithful to Christ will suffer some form of persecution. It may vary depending on our culture or our context, You don't have to suffer to be a Christian, but if you take a stand for God's truth, inevitably that will cost you. It will cost you family, relationships, it will cost you friendships, it will cost you opportunities in the world. It It will cost you so much at times. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And Paul says the end here, and we'll look at this next Sunday, but he, he expects them to, to walk the same path that he's treading. Verse 16, he says, I exhort you, be imitators of me. He says, lest you think that that's just the apostles thing, and the rest of us regular folk don't have to deal with that. He says, no, you need to walk in my footsteps. Be willing to walk in my footsteps. It's not surprising to me when Jesus got done preaching something very similar in John 6, at the end, it says, from that point on, many moved on. They weren't interested in that. They were there for the free food. They were there for the excitement. They were there for the healing and strength. But When Jesus said, you have to count at all costs and follow me, no matter what, pretty soon, they weren't interested anymore. I pray that isn't true for any that are here this morning. I pray that there isn't anybody here this morning that is just unwilling to, to go as far as God calls us to go through His word, to follow him. May we humble ourselves. And may that humility walk, may we walk in that day by day in his church in here with one another, that we wouldn't boast in in preferred leaders or preferred whatever personal preferences, but we would recognize that the truth, the clear theology of scripture that binds our hearts together, that is so much more significant than any little application of the scripture there. You know, we all have different opinions about schooling and politics and so forth, but this these are the things those are, those are applications of Scripture. Right. We're here, we're, we're united around the truth of God's Word, the things that bind our hearts together. That's why there are portions of Scripture like Revel, uh, Romans 14, where it says not to judge one another. In 1 Corinthians 8 and other passages. This is how the church walks as One. And Paul's going to f- bring his, his exhortation to a conclusion next week in verses 14 to 21. And he's going to explain that he is not confronting them to hurt them or to, to beat them down, but because he loves them as a spiritual father. It's a great reminder in our correction. That's what we'll see next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you again that you would love us so much as to correct us when we fall short in these things. We we all feel the tug in our prideful spirit. We think, and we, we just naturally are, we form opinions and strong convictions about things and sometimes, oftentimes, those things are not biblical. And then we we evaluate others according to those standards. We pray that we would just guard our hearts in that. Protect our church from that kind of division. Protect us from um, an attitude of um, a self-congratulation or may we recognize all we have is from you. We want to walk in lowliness and humility and the chief of graces, as it were, so that we might receive the fullness of your blessing. Or build our church up. Bind us together and. Your word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That concludes this recording. We hope you have been encouraged by the message you have heard. For more information about the gospel of Jesus Christ, additional sermon audio, or information about Cascades Bible Church, visit us online at CascadesBibleChurch.com.